Hey guys, thank you for checking in to another episode of The Naturalist Capitalist. I'm coming to you from my new home, New Hampshire, or I'm not in my new house yet. I'm temporarily in my parents' basement in proper libertarian fashion, but I have made it back to New Hampshire. I uh, had like a week-long trip and it was really cool. I stayed with people that I've podcasted with and met online all the way across the country, didn't stay in a hotel once. Uh, and it really, uh, I don't know, it was a real testament to the existence of the libertarian community across the country. That was pretty cool. But I got back here yesterday and um, I'll be going to Pork Fest next week. If any of you guys are in New Hampshire and you want to see me speak, I'll be speaking at uh, 5 o'clock p.m. on Wednesday and then at noon on Thursday. And then I'll be doing, I think, a live podcast at 3 p.m. on Thursday from the Mises tent. Um, on Wednesday, I'll be doing a talk about the war on the working man waged by our own government. And then on Thursday, I'll be talking about why I am coming back to New Hampshire. Uh, before we get into the episode, I just want to advertise some new stuff we've got going. Obviously, I'm wearing a new shirt here. This is our Four Horsemen merchandise. So we're kind of, you know, ripping off that uh, queen cover. <laughs> but obviously this is me, um, Ryan and Eric. And uh, we've got these stores. Uh, sorry, we got these shirts up online in the store. I also want to show some other um, designs we got. So this was the first one we came up with. This is just the regular green logo. You can get that. And then also we've got um, the dark logo also get one of those if you want uh one of the a little bit newer designs we're kind of uh doing a, an industrial looking one that kind of looks like the caterpillar logo you can also uh get those and then obviously uh the one i'm wearing and i'll show you a little bit better image of it here um that's what it looks like but yeah you can get those all uh toplobster.com um i'm going to drop the link in the live chat and I'm also going to show it on the screen here. Uh, if you're listening to this on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or whatever, there will be a link in the description where you can go and you can buy this merchandise. Uh, this is what the website looks like when you pull it up. Um, this is my part of the website. He also does stuff for Break the Cycle, uh, for Liberty Lockdown, for No Way Jose. So there's all sorts of different designs you can get, but uh, this is the section for my show. And there are more designs than what I've got here. I was just showing uh, some of the most popular ones. So definitely go check that out. And they're also, you know, there's, they're not just t-shirts. They've got hoodies they can get to, uh, different style shirts, different color shirts. They're not all black, not all green. You can get red, blue all sorts of different designs, but that is the best way that you can financially support me right now. Um, because you get a cool shirt, I get some money and I also expand my brand. So right now, the best way to support this show while I'm living here in New Hampshire is go to toplobster.com, buy all the merchandise you can. Anyway, now that that's out of the way, we're going to get into the show. I've got Dave DeCamp, back on again. We had him on a couple months ago talking about the truth of what was actually going on in Ukraine. And that is something that we're still not getting a straight shot from the media on. So I figured I'd have him back on to uh, tell us again. But how are you doing today, Dave? I'm good, Reed. Thanks for having me back. Yeah, absolutely, man. So 
it seems like everybody's starting to admit Ukraine can't win the war, right? I mean, they were trying to gaslight us into thinking that they could forever, but they're kind of getting to the point where they're like, yeah, no, they they actually can't. Is is that an accurate representation of what is finally going on? Yeah, pretty much. I mean, they're not saying that <clears throat> Ukraine's going to lose the war, but they're saying that they're losing right now in the East um, and that, you know, they're going to lose the battle for the Donbass pretty much. Uh, Ukrainian officials have said this too, that, you know, in their pitch to get more weapons from the U.S. and NATO because, that you know, they've been really... Uh, secretive about their casualties and stuff until pretty recently until about a few weeks ago they started uh sharing details um and the latest they said they're they're suffering up to a thousand casualties a day between you know that includes dead and wounded but it's a big number and of that between 200 and 500 uh are being killed um so that's that's significant and uh if you look at the battles that have been going down on the ground um you know like i've told you i don't really track like the day-to-day battlefield stuff because that's a full-time job in itself and it's really hard to know what's true and what's not but basically what's it's been some pretty brutal battles uh it's it's slow russia is moving kind of slowly but they've been steadily making gains you know this whole time for the past two months i guess it's been two months now since they turned their folk all their focus on the donbass on the east um so now, you know, the Ukrainian officials, they're asking for just an insane amount of weapons from the U.S. Uh, the U.S. And, and Britain just started sending these uh, longer range rocket systems, um, which is a pretty serious escalation in military aid. Um, but, the, you know, then there's a matter of training because Ukraine, they say we need these weapons to win this battle that's happening right now. But then you have the Pentagon saying that they have to train them on these rocket systems for at least three weeks. And that's kind of best case scenario. Um, and Ukraine is also saying they need 300 of these systems and the U S and Britain so far have only said they're going to send about seven. Uh, so again, you know, it's just so much that they're asking for. They also want tons of tanks, uh, from other Eastern European countries that have old Soviet era tanks. Um, so yeah, uh, that's their narratives that they just need all these weapons. And then they're saying that they can drive Russia out of all the Ukrainian territory that they occupy, including Crimea. This is the, the talking points coming from Zelensky, um, which is a really unrealistic goal. And I think, you know, the NATO and the U.S., they have to know that. But they're still saying that, you know, we're going to prepare. We're prepared to support them for years and years. Uh, Kathleen Hicks, she's the deputy secretary of defense. The other day she said, you know, Ukraine's going to survive this war and we're going to support them for 5, 10, 15, 20 years. Uh, they're ready to support Ukraine. So we're really in this for the long haul. And there's no sign of kind of a rapprochement with Russia. There's no nuclear arms control talks. State Department told me yesterday that now is not the time to have talks with Russia about anything. Uh, so that's pretty significant. And, and the, the U.S. ambassador in Russia, forget his name, I think Sullivan or something. But he's about 62 years old, and he says he doesn't expect in his lifetime for relations to get back on track. So uh, it's a pretty pretty bleak picture. And then now there was kind of some bright spots, kind of some fracturing among the NATO uh, alliance. You had France, Germany, and Italy all calling for negotiations. Macron was getting a lot of shit because he was, you know, he's telling people we can't humiliate Putin. They, they don't want to, you know, warning not to humiliate Russia like they did Germany at the end of World War One. 
not that they have the power to do that, but I kind of get understand this, his sentiment. And I think it's kind of good that he's been saying that. But then you had these guys, Macron, uh, and then the German Chancellor, uh, Schultz, and the Italian Prime Minister uh, Draghi, they were all in Kiev yesterday and saying, we're not going to push Ukraine to negotiate because they've been getting so much crap for saying that from Ukrainian officials and from probably behind the scenes, the U.S. and Britain and Poland. Well, Poland's been very public. They've been really critical of Macron for talking to Putin, saying it's like talking to Hitler during World War II. Uh, so then they're kind of there in Kiev yesterday, kissing Zelensky's ring. I, I, I hope that's still behind the scenes that they're going to push for negotiations. And then you, this week you had the U.S. pledge another $1 billion weapons package, which included harpoon anti-ship missiles for the first time. The U.S. has, they've been sent harpoon missiles through, uh, I think it was Denmark, U.S. made missiles that the U.S. approved, but this is the first time the U.S. is sending them. So it's another big escalation because with these missiles i mean that puts a lot of russian ships in the black sea in range it kind of widens the area where ukraine can use weapons that we give them and all this just risks escalation and risks you know war with russia but that is not calculated into anything uh, that the biden administration is doing yeah and wasn't the biden administration advising Zelensky on how to sink the russian fleet too a few months ago or something or yeah there were some reports that said uh you, Ukraine uh, used U.S. intelligence to, to sink the Moskva, if that's the, the right. name. It was the, the the flagship of Russia's Black Sea Fleet. Uh, the Pentagon kind of denied those reports. There's also reports that said they've helped kill Russian generals. Um, the, you know, but their denial was like, well, we didn't like tell them to do it, and we didn't give them targeting. Like, but they use U.S. intelligence to to do these attacks. Um, Although Russia denies that they sank the ship, and I think they have greatly exaggerated the amount of Russian generals they've killed, but it's still like U.S. officials were putting that out in the media, which is a pretty serious provocation to Russia. I mean, bragging about, I mean, I just, it's it seems like a cliche point to make, but imagine the shoe is on the other foot. Well, you don't really have to imagine because there was that Russian bounty story back in, I think that was 2020. That uh, Oh, yeah. Yep. said Russia was paying the Taliban bounties to kill American troops. And that turned out to be nonsense. It was later found out that it was based on pretty like low confidence intelligence, which means that they had no idea if it was true. It was just planted in the New York Times to disrupt the Afghanistan withdrawal. But you remember how everybody freaked out about that? So imagine, you know, what it's like to be in Russia right now. Yeah, no shit. So what about Russia? Um, are they reassessing every anything or are they still doubling down on their original goals and then also um what type of uh civilian casualties are they creating like we've heard we heard about the mass graves in mariupol that were i i assume fake at this point i don't know if you have any further information on that but is russia going to change its strategy at all and how destructive and merciless and um just uh, mindless killing machines have they been well so one big thing with russia during the first month of the war you know they they didn't do what they call a strategic bombing campaign which i don't really like that term because it makes a very barbaric thing sound pretty sophisticated it means right. they didn't destroy all the civilian infrastructure like the u.s did when they invaded iraq like the u.s did in Iraq and syria like uh you know they've the u.s has done in many wars but uh what's been happening you know mariupol was a little different it was more brutal 
um, the war right now, it seems like it's uh, it's been a lot. There's just much heavier fighting on the ground and more shelling. It's not. I don't think uh, it's really airstrikes and stuff, but just the nature of the 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 ground war now with all this artillery. I think it is a lot of civilians are are probably dying. The numbers, I'm not exactly sure of. Um, I mean, there's really no way to know at this point. I think the UN's tally is over 5,000 and that's what they Mm -hmm. say is confirmed. So it's probably higher than that. Um, So yeah, I mean, civilians are dying because that's the nature of war. Um, But, and we've seen, you know, some sieges, but it, it, it hasn't been like a total, you know, they haven't really unleashed the Russian Air Force uh, at this point. And, and when it comes to Russia's goals, that's a good question. We, you know, it seems like right now they're focusing on the Donbass. And um, I think they've given up on the idea of any kind of negotiated solution, because since Ukraine stopped talking in early April, uh, you know, there hasn't been any sign that they're willing to talk. And they keep saying they're going to drive them out of Crimea. So that's signaling to Russia that, you know, there's not really a point to go take it slower or anything. So I think they're definitely going to take the Donbass. They're pretty close. They have most of Luhansk and uh, most of Donetsk too, but not as much. And then, um, and then there's also the matter of um, they control the province, um, the oblast, they call them in Ukraine and Russia, north of Crimea, uh, Kherson. Or I think the Russians say Kherson. They control, I would guess, about 70% of that oblast and the one to the east Zaporizhia I again just looking at the map it looks like about 70 percent I'm not sure exactly how much and they've installed like these military administrations and the, the leaders of those administrations are saying you know they want to have a referendum to join Russia they're gonna they're, they want Moscow to annex these areas and you know uh they certainly have an interest these these guys that run these administrations because they're Ukrainian but if Russia leaves they're going to have to get out of there too, you know? So they, they, they want it to become Russia at this point. I don't know how much, how that sentiment is among the people that live there now. I really don't know. I know there's a lot of pro Russia sentiment in that part of the country, but some of that has probably died down a little because of this war. Mm -hmm. Uh, But it's just an example of, you know, Ukraine could have accepted the Minsk accords and, and given the Donbass their autonomy still would have been part of Ukraine and accepted that they're never going to get Crimea back. But since they didn't and they continue to say they won't, they're going to they're just losing more and more territory. So to, to gain it back, I mean, they're going to need a massive offensive. So that's kind of the question. Like I could see Russia kind of pushing them out of the Donbass completely and really fortifying that area. And there might be a little pause in the war and kind of we'll see what what happens then uh, if Ukraine's going to try an offensive, because if they are, they might want to prepare for kind of a long time and get more, more and more weapons and get more trained. But then again, is Russia going to sit there and let that happen? Or are they just going to start launching more airstrikes in the West, which they've been doing a little more lately. They said yesterday that they bombed the NATO warehouse in Lviv, which is in the West, um, a, a warehouse holding NATO weapons. So we'll see. Yeah. Yeah. I remember the last thing you said on the show when you were on a couple months ago is that the biggest lie is that Americans care about Ukrainians. And the longer we prolong this, the more innocent people are going to die. Cause like you said, the fighting's gonna get worse. It's gonna be in the cities, not just on battlefields and everything. So um, do you think that 
the Ukrainians might change their mind after a while? Like, are they going to, I mean, I know the United States seems to be fully supportive of driving the Russians out. And then uh, Zelensky really, you know, is all on board with that. But is there any sign that the Ukrainian people are getting sick of it or realizing that they can't win this war or any, any sentiment coming out of them? Um, I, I really haven't seen uh, much, but it's, pretty hard to get age on the ukraine people think because it seems like they've cracked down on media and stuff in ukraine and opposition parties and stuff but i do know that there was a there was a washington post article a few weeks ago uh they interviewed these volunteers soldiers that were on the front in the donbass and they were telling them that you know the leader, leadership in kiev forgot them they barely had enough weapons and ammo they were super un, unprepared they're living on a potato a day. Um, and, and they were saying this is it was a common sentiment among the volunteer, you know, the people that signed up to go fight right after Russia invaded. They were saying they thought they would get more training. They didn't think they'd be in the front lines like as quick as they were. Um, and they feel like they were abandoned. And then they got arrested after the interview because they, they left the front and they they gave the post the interview from a hotel. And right after they were they were arrested. Uh so, you know, if, if that sentiment is, is bigger uh, among not just the volunteers, but other Ukrainian soldiers, that, that could change things. But I'm not I'm not really sure. Um, you know, all this this war, you know, we haven't heard much of the Azov Battalion lately. I think a lot of them were taken out in the Battle of Mariupol. Uh, but, you know, bad war and, and all this really, uh, uh, you know, it hardens the extremists and and creates more of them so um they probably have a lot of soldiers that are still willing to fight and die yeah yeah so i mean at this point what is the best case scenario uh for some sort of peace resolution being reached i mean what do you see as a viable possibility now i mean it seems like a lot of things are um, a lot of things have been left in the dust and we won't be able to reach those negotiations anymore. But is there any hope for anything, do you think? Or is it kind of dismal at this point? It's pretty dismal. I mean, I, I, I was a little hopeful because of Macron, Schultz and, and what they were saying. And then Draghi, because he kind of switched at first. He was saying, no, don't negotiate with Russia. Um, but he, he really... Uh, seems like he had a pretty big change of heart. And I think it was because of domestic politics in Italy. Apparently, uh, arming Ukraine is not very popular at all in, in Italy. And there's opposition parties and his own coalition that that don't want to send any more weapons to Ukraine. And I think kind of our best hope is for that to grow. And, and there are some other countries. Uh, Bulgaria has never sent weapons to Ukraine. The prime minister wanted to, but his, you know, his, the government, um, enough people were against it that he couldn't although i think they're having a political crisis there now that government might change so that could change but um but from what i understand the sentiment in bulgaria in the bulgarian parliament was let's not be involved in this so i think we have to hope that that's going to grow i mean you had the dutch prime minister the other day say nato was like using ukraine as a weapon against russia um so the pope uh, said that too right recently? yeah he said it a few times yeah he, he yeah. said you know the war uh he, he blamed the war pretty much on nato expansion he said it provoked russia he still said you know russian aggression is 
bad and what they're doing is horrible. But, you know, he's saying, you know, kind of the obvious fact that gets you labeled a, you know, Putin propagandist or whatever. Um, so, yeah, that's pretty interesting. And in America, you know, it seems like uh, people are just getting really fed up uh, with the prices and inflation and everything. And I think that $40 billion bill really woke a lot of people up to it because that's so much money. It's yeah. so far, it's $54 billion that they've approved for Ukraine. That's supposed to last to the end of this fiscal year, which is ends on September 30th for the government. But I mean, it's just so much money. Um, but I don't know. I mean, even if if Biden's out in 2024 and a Republican comes in, I, I can't imagine them, you know, if this is still going on, I can't imagine them really changing things. Uh, but I think the bet, you know, it, it's not a I don't have high hopes at all, really. I think kind of the best case scenario is like a frozen conflict where mm-hmm. Russia stops at the Donbass and they might try to settle something for a while, uh, but or it could be one of those conflicts where there's, you know, sporadic clashes and, and then it'll blow up again in a few years, which is not good. That's not a good scenario. So I don't know. I, I, I was a little more ho- hopeful like a couple of weeks ago when I saw the narrative changing, but it seems like they're still really uh, doubling down. I'm going to fix my camera. It's like flashing. Yeah, no problem. I don't know. That might have helped. So what um, do you think Israel's going to accept playing second fiddle for aid from the United States now that Ukraine's <laughs> taken first place? <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's that's interesting. Yeah, they really have blown them out of the water, uh, Ukraine. <laughs> they they might. I mean, it seems like they're trying to start a war with Iran right now. Uh, this another thing a lot of people I, I don't think a lot of people have been paying attention to is all these. There's been a lot of mysterious deaths inside Iran and some have been attributed to Israel. There was an IRGC colonel that was gunned down in Tehran. And, uh, you know, Israel kills people inside Iran. They've done assassinations before. They they never officially, uh, they never officially um, take credit for it, but they're they're official. They do it through the media. And then usually in a few years, they're like, yeah, that was us. But um, so the the colonel was gunned down. And then there was a a report in the New York Times that said Israel told the U.S. that they that they did it. And Mm -hmm. uh, and then there is also just another one to uh, guys that worked in, uh, I think they were scientists. One worked at a military facility. They were poisoned and they died. And Iran thinks it was Israel. There was a drone attack on an Iranian military facility and an engineer died. So it's four people right there. And then there was another two mysterious deaths that, you know, they called them. It was inside Iran. They were aerospace workers and Iran's call them martyrs so that kind of signals that they were killed so yeah the the, the israel stuff is is israel ran stuff is really heating up as the 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 new last hopes for the nuclear deal are kind of gone uh biden really and we're increasing sanctions on iran right now too right as those kind of dry up yeah i mean yeah because they're they're target trying to target iran's oil sales to asia um so they just sanctioned I mean, any sanctions that they put on Iran right now, I mean, Iran is sanctioned pretty much as much as it can be by the U.S. The thing now is that they're trying to target the Chinese companies, the other companies from different countries that are still shipping Iranian oil. Gotcha. 
So uh, just on the note of Israel killing people in other countries, I was reading an article that you put, I think you put up about uh, the United States giving intelligence to Israel to help them kill people in Syria. I think that was your yeah. article. Yeah. Well, yeah, it said um, it said that they were reviewing, that they reviewed and approved many Israeli airstrikes in Syria. Um, it didn't say that they're giving them intelligence or giving them targets, but it said that because a lot of Israeli airstrikes, they fly past the El Tamf base in southern Syria where, that, where the U.S. has troops stationed. So Israel, like, you know, clears them, the airstrikes with the U.S. and the, and the officials at Cent Central Command have to sign off on them, this report in the Wall Street Journal said. And it, it's not really a surprise. Uh, it's pretty obvious to anybody who's been paying attention Um to Israel's airstrikes in Syria, because a lot of them, they fly from the direction of that base. Um, some people suspect that they launched them from that base, uh, but we don't know that for sure. Um, but it was kind of a big report because it's the first time that this coordination was kind of confirmed. And I mean, Israel bombs Syria all the time. They bomb Syria a few times a week sometimes. And, and in the, their latest airstrikes, they disabled the Damascus airport, uh, and it, which is a pretty big deal uh, you know there's a pretty big strikes to to do that um and everything they do they frame it as attacking iran uh the the airport one they said they were disrupting uh hezbollah arm shipments but you know there's no way to know how much truth there is to their claims um but yeah i mean the u.s is really out at war still at war with syria with damascus um, because they occupy a pretty good portion of the East, uh, about a thousand troops there, and they back the Kurdish groups that control the area and where most of the oil fields are, where most of the wheat fields are. And they have really insane sanctions on Syria that specifically target construction and energy sectors. And, and they say, Blinken said the point of these, these sanctions is to prevent reconstruction, you know, which is just very uh, evil to to openly say that you're preventing a country from rebuilding after over 10 years of war that, that you fueled and uh, funded. Um, it's really regime change because they, they say that uh, it's still a policy of regime change is what they're pursuing. Cause they say they'll lift the sanctions when there's a government, a political transition, but that means regime change. Uh, so yeah, it's pretty, it's pretty bad. I mean, more people I wish kind of wake up to, to the fact that we really are at war with Syria by doing what we're doing mm -hmm. on paper. And what's interesting is the, the Kurds, the SDF that we back, they, uh, you know, it seems like Turkey's preparing another little in invasion into Northeast Syria there. And they said that if the US uh, doesn't help them, that they'll work with the Syrian government. They said this multiple times. Every time Trump said he was gonna pull out, they said, We'll just go, you know, talk. We'll go to Damascus and talk to Assad. It, it's an, always an option for us, was one, one uh, of the Kurdish leaders there said, which really blows a hole in a lot of the narrative, In the, uh, especially when Trump said he was pulling out and didn't, when everybody was screaming about the Kurds. Right. Because that is a viable option for them. Uh, and, you know, they're, they say that they're there to help them fight ISIS. The U.S. says they're there to help fight ISIS. But both... You know the Syrian government and the Kurds, they could 
handle ISIS, you know, no problem at this point. And it would probably bring more stability to the country if they just work together instead of these kind of blockades and embargoes they have around the country. Uh, I just wrote an article yesterday about Syrian farmers are struggling because the Kurdish authorities, the Rojava uh, is the name of their state. They have banned Syrian farmers in the region, which is where two thirds of Syria's wheat comes from, from selling to government controlled territory. Um, and this is, you know, millions of people inside government controlled areas are, are facing pretty severe food shortages. Um, so, uh, yeah, it's just, you know, if they work together and open that country back up, things would be a lot better. Yeah. So Biden is going to talk to uh, Ben Salman in Saudi Arabia in the next few days. Is that right? Or has it happened yet? Or coming uh, up soon? N- next month, July. 14th. Next month. Okay. Uh, yeah, he's going on a little tour. He's going to Israel. He's going to the West Bank and he's going to Saudi Arabia. Um and speaking of Israel and bombing Syria and Iran, uh, one uh, kind of big at- thing that's been going on behind the scenes is Israel wants to form like an alliance with the U.S.'s Arab, like Gulf Arab allies. And that was a big part of the Abraham Accords that Trump brokered that saw Israel normalize with Bahrain and the UAE. Since then, Saudi Arabia is still hesitant to normalize with Syria, open full diplomatic relations, but they have increased military cooperation. They've been openly participating in military drills with Israel and the U.S. for the first time. Uh, And Israeli officials, you know, they've been saying uh, that they want basically a NATO style alliance in the Middle East against Iran. Uh, And Biden said that a big part of his trip is about Israel's security. Uh, And there was recently just a bill introduced in the House and Senate simultaneously that I forget the exact details, but it's something how the U.S., they want to integrate missile defense systems between Israel, Saudi Arabia, the UAE, all these Arab countries. They mentioned Iraq, but Iraq, they just passed a law that if you normalize with Israel, you could be put to death. So I don't think they're going to go for it. That was a successful neocon regime change there. Um, Yeah, no kidding. (laughs) It's just kind of, this is a big plan. This is a big part of the plan for the U.S. to kind of step back from the region, to focus on Russia and China, is to create this NATO-style alliance with Israel and uh, the Arab countries working together. So there's been a ceasefire in Yemen for like a couple months now. Uh, Actually, why don't we just talk about, has that been maintained? Is it, has it really, has the fighting really stopped or is there still a lot of fighting going on in Yemen or what's going on? Well, I mean, it's been uh, pretty successful. Uh, there haven't been any known Saudi airstrikes in Yemen for over two months now, which is unprecedented since the war started in 2015. There's been some fighting on the ground. Some people have still been dying. Uh, and there's been, some drone strikes that they said, but th- those were probably U.S. drone strikes because the U.S. is still, uh, Biden just confirmed the other day that there's still U.S. troops deployed in Yemen to fight Al-Qaeda. So while they're backing the Saudi war against the Houthis and the Saudis and the UAE use Al-Qaeda guys on the ground to fight the Houthis, they're also still bombing Al-Qaeda kind of pretty rarely, but that's still been going on. And, and when Trump came in his first year in office, he really ramped up that air war uh, against al-qaeda in yemen um and then slowed it down again but it's just uh it's just u.s foreign policy like back you in one country you're backing 
one group against another group, but you're bombing the other group too. Like it's just insane. But yeah, but the ceasefire is held held pretty good, and uh, there's been some easing of the blockade. I don't think it's not fully lifted, but they've been letting more ships into Hodeida, and flights left the Sanaa airport for I believe the first time since 2015, which is which is pretty amazing uh, that the airport's been closed that long. So that was always a big Houthi, you know, they agreed to the ceasefire, but a big precondition of theirs was always that they have to end the blockade or ease, or open up the Sinai airport and, and open up Hodeida, um, which is the port on the Red Sea. So, yeah, it's looking pretty good. And then there's been a war powers resolution introduced in the House. Yes. Yep. Um, and this is something Scott, Scott Horton is trying to really rally a lot of people to call their reps and 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 get them to uh, support this bill, either co-sponsor it or just, uh, you know, say they'll vote vote yes because um, this this really is the moment with this ceasefire. Um, I'm a little worried about Biden's trip to Saudi Arabia because he's really trying to reset relations with them, and there's a chance he might you know say yeah you got my full support in Yemen and that they'll kind of restart it. Uh, there's always a fear that they're just kind of taking a break while they replenish their warplanes but uh hopefully that's not the case that's why i think this war powers resolution is so important right now it's already got about 80 co-sponsors which is pretty significant and eight of them are republicans so it's not just democrats um so i actually got an email yesterday i think it was the mises caucus but he's scott's been trying to get you know the, the lp to really push this which is great uh he said, I couldn't believe that he tried back in 2018 or 2019 and he got shut down by the LP to support a war powers resolution to end one of the worst wars that the U.S. has ever supported. I, I, I can't believe that. But um, but yeah, I think people should call. They have a number. Let me just double check what it is so I don't say the wrong thing. Um, yeah, it's one eight three three stop war And then there's instructions um you'll get some instructions and you'll get your representative and senator and either leave a voicemail or you'll get somebody in their office to pick up um if you go to 1833stopward.com there's a little prompt for just what you can say i always feel like weird making these calls so i just looked at this prompt um it's it's probably seems pretty silly to a lot of us <laughs> calling your senators and congress people in congress but i think this this What's happening right now with the activists are really pushing. You know, they were the ones behind the war powers resolution that reached Trump's desk in 2019, which he vetoed. Um, yeah, that was pretty significant. They got Congress to pass a war powers resolution challenging the executive branch's authority to wage war. Um, that's that's a big deal. So they're all behind this again, and they're very uh, hopeful for it. There's some language in there that. Uh, you know, Biden would be able to, you know, find loopholes to continue the war, but that that's going to happen either way. I mean, it, but if if enough Democrats in Congress tell him to end the war, I think I think he might, um, unless you know what Saudi the Saudi Arabia is looking for in this visit really is for them to kind of double down on support. Um, so hopefully that's not the case, but. Um, yeah. yeah, it's an, it's an interesting group of names who led the effort in the House. It's uh, Peter DeFazio. I don't really know him. Mm. Uh, Pramila Jayapal. That one's not that 
surprising. But Nancy Mace and Adam Schiff. That's <laughs> yeah. kind of interesting. But yeah. I know Schiff supported it before. Mm-hmm. I don't know about Mace. That's interesting. But yeah, and yeah. it's cool to see, you know, Thomas Massey was one of the first co sponsors. Um, so it's definitely got some support. Um and again, this trip, I'm definitely worried about the trip to Saudi Arabia. Uh and it's really just something it really just shows so much bullshit that he's going there to to talk to MBS to get them to produce more oil when the whole narrative about Russia is, oh, we can't buy their oil because of this invasion. They invaded their neighbor and they're challenging the rules-based order, whatever the hell they call it. And then here he's going to this country that's been waging this brutal war against the children of Yemen for since 2015 to, to get them to do it. But I guess they did it with the U S support. So it's okay. (laughs) And, and you also have Iran and Venezuela. You could just lift sanctions on them and get so much more oil moving, but, no, I can't do that because they're the bad guys for, for whatever reason. Yeah. Yeah. So I know you said you're a little worried that the Saudis could be just recalculating how they want to wage this war. Um, aren't, hasn't the fervor for the war kind of died in Saudi Arabia? Haven't, hasn't the political will behind it kind of evaporated too? Or is that not true? Yeah, I think, well, it's become pretty unpopular i think just because of how long it it took and one of the things is they they got released like a hottie which was the the yemeni president that the houthis expelled and he's been living in saudi arabia since 2015 in exile um and they replaced him with like a presidential council that was the first move before the ceasefire um so that that uh might mean that there is political will in saudi arabia to just end the war and uh you know, just get out before they, it just, cause I mean, the Houthis, you know, they're not going to beat the Houthis territory really, really hasn't changed hands at all since 2015. Um, it's been pretty small and, uh, you know, the, the war has really been brutal, uh, for the past couple of years on the ground. I mean, major battles around Marib, uh, which is one of the last areas that the Saudi backed government controls. Um, and the Saudi air war really ramped up. You know, right before Russia, around the time Russia invaded Ukraine, they were bombing Yemen more than they have in years. Um, so maybe they saw that, you know, that that never that didn't change things before. It's just it's it's not it's an unwinnable war for them. And maybe uh, they are, you know, ready to actually end it. But and then what the peace will look like is a whole nother thing. Uh because you know this is saudi arabia we're talking about we can't really trust them to make a good peace deal um and the situation you know it's going to take years and years for the country to recover from the blockade from all the disease that the bombing has has caused and stuff um but yeah we'll see yeah so uh switching gears again um i did notice that china told the united states that the taiwan strait is not um international waters and they don't want u.s ships sailing through there anymore and the u.s just said well too bad we're going to keep doing it anyways um i had patrick mcfarlane on like a month ago and he was explaining that the biden administration has actually been the most hawkish administration on china uh maybe ever but at least very recently um or not ever i guess during the korean war but um Certainly now, you know, certainly in recent years or whatever. Um, 
how worried are you about escalations increasing with China now? Like, I mean, is this really as bad as because every what, what I basically see is libertarians are talking about how bad it is. And then everyone's saying, no, 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 you're just being ridiculous. Like, we just don't like China. We just don't like what they're doing. We're not going to go to war with them. There's no danger of going to war with them. But that seems to kind of echo the sentiments surrounding Russia with Ukraine a couple of years ago. Like, this is the same thing. Like, of course, we don't want to go to war with Russia, but we just don't like what they're doing. We don't like their politics. So we're just going to pressure them. And here we are. But uh, what are your thoughts? Yeah, I mean, China, it's one issue that, I followed pretty closely starting under the Trump administration because I saw, you know, he really kind of ramped things up with China, obviously the trade war and stuff, but there's also this kind of major increase in U.S. military activity in that region, more warships near China's coast in the South China Sea. Um, and Biden came in and he really increased all of it. Um, and kind of what's more significant to me than the warships is the U.S., increasing you know their informal ties with taiwan because that really angers china and uh you know things aren't nothing's going to get hot for a long time in that over there but this is you know the precursor to uh you know something 10 years down the line maybe uh could really pop off over there because it's very similar you know People try to draw parallels between the Ukraine war and Taiwan, how evil Russia and China are. But uh, there is a parallel in the sense of the U.S. military buildup, uh, you know, against Russia, what it led to. And now yeah. what they're trying to do in the Asia Pacific, they're kind of failing to get as many countries to go along. They want Southeast Asian nations to go along with them against China. But they're still uh, ramping up all these military exercises near China and it's really pissing them off. Um, but again, the, the, the Taiwan stuff, you know, there's been more congressional delegations going to Taiwan. They've been signing these deals to increase cooperation. That is what really angers uh, Beijing. And this, uh, w what happened uh, the other day was, you know, the U S they sail a warship through the Taiwan Strait about, about once a month. Um, and in their press releases on it, they always say, oh, we set, made a routine transit through the Taiwan Strait in, in international waters. We'll fly and sail wherever we want. And so the other day, the Chinese foreign ministry said it's not international waters. And they cited UNCLOS, the United Nations Convention of the Law of the Sea, which lays out territorial waters the, uh, and waters that extend off of a country's coast and technically they don't call anything international waters under that convention. Um, so that was kind of his point. Uh, and he was saying he wasn't saying that countries aren't allowed to go through Taiwan. He was just saying it's not territorial. Uh, it's not international waters. The U.S. just says that so they can manipulate China and interfere in the region, which, you know, he's he's right about because <laughs> mm -hmm. why else would they be sailing warships, you know, between Taiwan and the and mainland China? Uh, the, the, the strait is 70 miles at its narrowest and just over 200 miles at its widest point. Um, so, I mean, it's not like a small strait, but it's it's not huge. Um, and China considers Taiwan to be its territory. Uh, but the U.S. responded. They said, we're going to keep doing it. So, haha. But, um, but I think people really have to take this seriously uh, because you have Chinese officials. They've kind of changed their tone in the past year. 
in response to what the U.S. has been doing, which is increasing using Taiwan against China. And it's a big change because 1979, the U.S. severed diplomatic relations with Taiwan as part of its opening up with China. Since then, they sold Taiwan weapons, but it was always kind of like um, they viewed cross-strait relations, they call them, as kind of a problem between the U.S. and Chinese relationship. Like we had, it, it was an issue, and they wanted to keep China happy about it. And this is according to the U.S. Uh, deputy ambassador in Taiwan. He's not a real ambassador. It's a de facto embassy, but he said this last year. Said now we view Taiwan as a way to counter China, as a way to uphold the rules-based order, or how he put it, some some nonsense like that. But it was really interesting comments because he said, you know, he's been there for a long time, and he saw the change in the past few years that now it's kind of a, a wedge to use against China, something to to hit them with, and uh, you know, just uh, I haven't looked into this too much but just yesterday um i think it was menendez the, the senate democrat who's a senate armed services chair and lindsey graham they introduced a bill in congress uh in the senate that would give taiwan four over four billion dollars in military aid over the next four years and it would also require sanctions on China if they invaded Taiwan, which is pretty huge because right now the policy is strategic ambiguity. You know, you had Biden the other day say that they would, uh, that the U.S. would intervene, which was walked back right away. But the whole idea of the policy is that the U.S. won't say one way or another what they're going to do. If they say now that they're going to sanction China, and, and you, you've had officials lately saying that, oh, yeah, if China invades Taiwan, we're going to put sanctions on them like we did Russia. Which, I mean, if Russian sanctions on Russia are hurting our economy, imagine what would happen if we started sanctioning China like that. I mean, we would, it would be, we wouldn't be able to do it. But, um, and that's kind of another aspect of it is the economic relationship kind of keeps us from really going to ever going to war with China. But there's a pretty big push to, you know, and I think, um, diversifying supply chains is definitely a good idea. Producing more stuff in the U.S. is definitely a good idea. I'll never mm -hmm. argue with that. But there's a serious effort, uh, maybe not a serious effort yet, but there's a pretty significant portion of people that are saying we need to decouple with China, like full decoupling. Tom Cotton wants to do it. It's kind of a really ultra hawks want to do it, but also a lot of like the populist right, the, the MAGA America first people, they say, I don't want war with China. I just want to stop trading with them and, and close our markets to them. It's like, well, okay. If, we, if you're talking about that, you have to all recognize the military build, the, the US Western military buildup in Asia that's happening and this stuff for Taiwan, because that means we're going to end up in a war if we totally uh, close them off. Um, so you can't really talk about one issue without the other. It's just the real, it's just the world that we live in. Um, so I think, uh, we should, um, not, you know, decouple with China. I think that's a very bad idea. Um, again, sure. If you want to diversify more supply chains, but, and I also don't think we should be more like China and kind of be more and, uh, more protectionists. And, and I think we should drop the tariffs and, um, you know, it's all about IP. It's all about intellectual property. Um, mm -hmm. when it comes to China, that's really the main talking point. Uh, but if you're a business and you're a corporation and you want to do business with China, they might, 
you know, take your ideas. That's just the consequence of doing business with China and it's for them to deal with. And, uh, it's just interesting how that became, that's like kind of the major talking point with China and why they're so bad. It's the IP thing. And then there's also a lot of more conspiratorial things about how China is controlling our government, but that's all nonsense. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's not China. It's a different country. So, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Um, so before I got banned off of Twitter, rest in peace myself, um, <laughs> you tagged me in a post, I don't know, a couple of weeks ago or something saying, well, God damn it, you finally made me do it. And <laughs> you joined the Libertarian Party. So uh, last time I had you on the show, like that wasn't even you, you said you liked Dave Smith and you liked watching my show and some other people's shows. But you were like, "Nah, probably not going to do it. But now you've done it. So what, what changed your mind and why should other people do the same thing? Well, I didn't realize how, like that you guys were taking over that quickly. And I didn't think it was going to be that successful. I really had no idea. And kind of seeing the stuff that happened in Reno. And I watched like the speech, like Ron Paul was there. Dan McAdams was there talking mm-hmm. about how the U.S. government shouldn't have a foreign policy. Like it was so hardcore and so cool. And to see that just you guys win. I'm like, oh, this is exciting. This is a movement. And I didn't like. I also didn't realize how big it was, like how, how much of the party now is Mises Caucus and ha- is people. And now we're seeing it with the LP, you know, with the Twitter account, how they're prioritizing the stuff that I really care about, which is, you know, ending the wars in the empire and also COVID lockdowns and stuff. Um, so, I mean, yeah, it's just exciting. And, and, and why not be a part of it? Um, I'm not really political. I've never really been involved in politics at all in my life. Uh, but I figured I would just join and see what happens. And um, kind of, I do need to start going to events and stuff. We were talking, I'm probably going to try to go to the Ron Paul Institute conference that's coming up in DC because you can get pretty cynical. I mean, I just sit on a computer for 12 hours a day, reading and writing about all this horrible stuff. Um, yeah. <laughs> so I think it would be good for me to get out. I mean, I have a great life. I live out in the country with my wife and baby and, we have a little homestead and everything. And, but I just mean like when it comes to the political stuff, I'm so cynical. I'm just writing, even when you asked me before about Russia and Ukraine, like I can't really imagine a good outcome, but maybe just being in a room of people and seeing that convention and watching some clips from that, whatever the hell that was that the, the convention that you guys were at all day, it was very funny. Mm-hmm. Some of that stuff made me like, yeah, I should get, I got to get in a room with people that, are you know agree agree with me and uh you know it looks fun too so i figured i would uh join and yeah i don't know like i guess the next step for you guys i mean there's also besides all the other stuff that the lp does the local stuff ballot access stuff i guess the next big thing right is getting dave the nomination yeah i mean if things continue on the current trajectory that's not going to be very hard but yeah um yeah. And I'm interested, like what happens after that? Like, um, because I feel like we're all anticipating that moment, but none of us are like really thinking about, I, I think we're just kind of open-ended on what happens after that. So it, it's going to be interesting and exciting to see what happens in the next several years. But it, I tell you, like being there in Reno at the convention and then going to the Ron Paul event in Texas and then driving all the way across the country and having a place to stay every night just from, you know, different libertarians I know. It is 
I mean, it's so much less toxic than Twitter would make you think it is. Cause mm-hmm. that's kind of, I mean, it's weird being off right now, but that that's the place where we all kind of communicate. It's definitely Twitter. That's where we're all talking to each other and talking about stuff or whatever. But um, when you meet those people in real life, and especially when you're doing something like what we did in Reno, it's, it's inspiring for sure. No doubt. Yeah. Yeah. No, it is. It seems really cool. Um, and uh, yeah, I don't know how I live in Virginia. I don't know. Uh, I know there's a Virginia Mises caucus. I should probably just hit them up and see if they do what they got going on here. Um, you know, just to get involved. But, um, you know, it'll be really because also I, I think I was listening to Michael Heiss talk about, you know, the whole, all the criticism about Dave Smith about I mean, the one thing I always think of is like I watch Legion of Skanks. I love his comedy podcast. Mm-hmm. And like I always just imagine the clips that they could find and like play on CNN if he's the nominee, if he's running like, <laughs> yeah, it would be so funny. And but that also doesn't really matter because he's got Joe Rogan, which is mm-hmm. the biggest media media now. So, and I think Heist made that point. His Joe Rogan, you know, he's been on Tim Pool, which is also huge. Um, a lot. I mean, Mal, uh, it seems like Michael Mouse is really big too. Um, and he's on there all the time. So, there is this whole other media ecosystem, and he's got it, and people seem to really like him. And then, but he still is so radical to me in a good way. Like, it's just really great to see because some of, some of those people aren't like Tim Pool. A lot of people that are on there, a lot of people that are on Rogan just aren't good on a lot of things. But Dave is still able to be himself and get and get platform like that. So it's really exciting. And I mean, they wanted to do like, didn't they want to do president? Did they want Rogan to do debates last time? I think Biden yeah, tried to get them. on his show and he said no. I think Trump yeah. tried to get on his show. Yeah, I think he only let Tulsi, Yang, and Bernie go on his show, and maybe Marianne Williamson. Can't remember, but did he let? I think maybe Gary Johnson. Back yeah, he did in 2016. Yeah, yeah. but uh, last time around, it was only a couple people. And yeah. I remember I was on the Tulsi campaign, and there was like this movement to try to get, uh, you know, Joe Rogan to moderate one of the debates because the. <laughs> the moderators for CNN and everything were just so awful. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I don't know. I mean, I, I think, uh, you know, something that's been really good about having Trump and then Biden as president and in the debates and everything is no one takes any of this seriously anymore. Right. Like back in yeah. 2012, 2008, when Obama was, running you know and he was running against mccain and romney everything was so respectable so everyone still took it all so seriously but now like (laughs) the the reverence has gone away i guess so i think that gives us a huge opportunity yeah i mean 2016 debates were so ridiculous they were hilarious and very fun to watch (laughs) but then this last time when it was trump and biden it was just like what the what is this it was so bad and like it wasn't really funny either it was just like man this is it huh (laughs) yeah yeah it's just depressing it was like wow this is what we've arrived at (laughs) yeah and then joe jorgensen's campaign was just i mean i'm sure you've talked about this plenty but just so uninspiring uh that you know the lp even if people don't like the mises caucus or dave smith like they they have to admit that the party needed like a real kick in the ass oh yeah um, but it seems like from the numbers, I think 
Angela got like 70% to be the chair. Mm -hmm. So it seems like the majority, you know, is more than the majority is in your guys on your guys side. Um, and even I watched that reason documentary and a mash, you know, he seems like he has his issues, but he's, uh, you know, he's ready to work with you guys and everything. So I think that's, uh, that's good. Cause he's a, a lot of people know who he is, but yeah. And I'm yeah. sure that there's going to be some people that want him to be the candidate, but I think it's gotta be Dave. Yeah. Yeah. Like Amash is the guy who you want to be the first libertarian president whenever that happens, but we're not yeah. anywhere yeah. close to that. Like <laughs> this is where you have to break through the wall and change the way people are thinking and kind of shake things up. And I don't think that's really what his role is. So mm -hmm. um, I'm all in on Dave for sure. So I always wonder. Yeah. I always wonder too about people that run that are like anarchists that run for LP positions. And, you know, I see some of them kind of, I guess, run as like minarchists in the, in the system and they say what they'll do within the system. And then there's other people that are more like, Oh, I get in the office. Everything's I'm abolishing everything. So mm -hmm. I wonder, cause that's kind of tricky to navigate, I think. So I just wonder how, you know, Dave, but I think Dave, I think the way to go would to be to do it within the system. If you want to be on the national stage and get, you know, debate or just be a presidential candidate, you can't just say, we're just going to dissolve. We're going to end. I mean, I think you can say we're going to end every war and close every military base. Um, mm -hmm. But, you know, I don't know if you could really be like, oh, yeah, we're going to abolish the Department of Education. You know, things like that, people are just going to be like, what? <laughs> yeah. So see how he how he handles that will be interesting, I think. Yeah, I want to see either Biden or Harris be the Democrat nominee uh, next time. And then <laughs> this will piss off a lot of the populist right wingers. But I want to see Trump and DeSantis both jump in the ring and just beat each other to death, because that would be super entertaining for one. Yeah. Because you've got an immovable force meeting an, I mean, an immovable object meeting an unstoppable force in a, in a lot of ways. Like Trump is great at hurling the insults, but then DeSantis is the king of like, no, I'm sorry, that's wrong. Let me, you know, establish what really happened or whatever. And like seeing yeah. them just duke it out and get really vicious and awful. Ugh. And then like leaving the Republican Party basically split at the end of the primary um, yeah. against Joe Biden, that's just like the perfect opportunity to, for Dave to be like, yo, <laughs> there's yeah, another yeah. way, but <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. I mean, I always think about 2016, like Gary Johnson, he got, what did he get? Like 3%? Yeah. 3.7% or something. I, think yeah. I forget. And everybody but, I knew that voted for him, like didn't like it. Mm -hmm. They were just like, we're just vote, not voting for these two. That was me. Yeah. Yeah. There's a lot of people like, Everybody I could think of that I knew in my life at the time that voted libertarian were like, yeah, I mean, he's an idiot, but you can't vote for Hillary or Trump. Yeah. So, yeah, that, so that was just such a missed opportunity. Um, so I think it's really good what has happened. And, you know, I guess that was after that was when Heist started, like, started the Mises caucus, right? So yeah. Like 2017. Yeah. 2017. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So yeah, it's definitely a good, uh, good opportunity, I think. Yeah. 
All right, man. Well, where can people keep up with you? I've got your Twitter and I think antiwar.com and antiwar.com's Twitter in the description. But anything else you got coming up or places you want people to keep up with you? Um, that's really it. Uh, we're uh, starting a fundraiser next week, um, probably on Monday. We got to raise some money. We got to, you know, it's always tough. So if people can support us, we'd really appreciate it. Um, we're going to be sending out fundraising letters and you'll see posts and stuff because um, we could really use the help. Uh, you know, it's been anti, I had to say Eric Garris that runs antiwar.com. He doesn't really get any of the credit, but he, I mean, he works. I mean, I work long days, but he's pretty much the moment he wakes up till he goes to sleep. He's on the computer talking to people because what we do, I mean, being funded just by our readers, you have to call a lot of people you have to know a lot of people keep relationships that's kind of the hardest thing to me i'm not good at that stuff so he mm-hmm. really spends a lot of time on that and angela keaton too she she also does a ton of our fundraising i mean she just calls people up and says hey it's that time of year again and that's so much of what we need to kind of survive as an independent website that produces as much content as we do we put out a crazy amount of content daily content um so yeah, we're going to need some help this time around just because it's tough for everybody right now. So it's tough for us. Um, so, yeah, I'll uh, just keep that in mind. Oh, and also, I didn't mention this. It's kind of the most important news of the day was that the British Home Secretary approved the extradition of Assange to the U.S. today. That happened this morning. Oh, shit. Uh, he can still appeal it. So I'm not sure how long that process will be. But, um, yeah, it's not it's not good. Uh you know, it's been kind of bounced around because at first they 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 rejected it because they thought he could get tortured in a U.S. you know supermax prison um, because he's been suicidal or he has Asperger's or his mental health is not good. Um, I mean, being locked up in Belmarsh Prison in London is torture too. But um, so now, but they ultimately decided to extradite him. He can appeal it. So I don't know what to tell people to do about that. I mean, I think we just more people need to be aware of what's happening there because if he gets extradited and he gets prosecuted, then, I mean, that just opens up. I mean, if you think they're bad now with the censorship and stuff, they'll be able to lock people up, like for real. Uh, I mean, not that he, he, people have been locked up, but I mean, it'll be much more common, I think. You, you do think it'll set a precedent, even though they've kind of already trash the first amendment anyway or i think it'll set a huge precedent yeah i mean because it's what he's being they're charging him for espionage for receiving uh you know leaks from a source that's Mm -hmm. all he did and they say that he tried to um you know manipulate not manipulate but kind of pushed uh chelsea manning to to give him the all the documents but i mean that's what journalists that's what journalists do if you have a source and you want them to give you something you say hey can you send me that <laughs> it's not like anything nefarious at all and they're trying to portray it like that and uh so yeah i mean if that's the case then the new york times journalists can get locked up which i know sounds nice in a way but <laughs> yeah but you know what i mean like it, yeah. it'll be for real for any kind of big hack and dump they're going to be locking people up i think i think we'll never yeah. see another wikileaks style release if he gets prosecuted and and it's told us so much and like we need that about we need a state department cables dump about the lead up to the to the war in ukraine because i bet there's biden officials saying they're probably more careful about their internal emails now 
saying, no, we're not going to negotiate because like basically saying that they, they wanted this to happen, but there's yeah. tons of evidence of that, um, that their intention was to trap, not trap Russia in a war, but you know, provoke the war. I, I, I think there's a lot of stuff we would learn from that. And if Assange gets prosecuted, then people are going to be a lot more afraid to do that stuff. Yeah. For sure. All right, guys. Well, uh, thanks for watching. Again, go to toplobster.com and support me by buying my merchandise. You can get all sorts of different shirts. And I'll have a website coming soon where you can support me directly if you want. And I'll be at Porkfest next week, uh, Wednesday and Thursday, doing speeches both days. Uh, I'm also going to Freedom Fest. I'm going to uh, Yal Revolution down in florida in august and there's more stuff coming up too so just stay tuned if you used to follow me on twitter um i'm, pr I'm probably going to start a telegram group soon just because i might make another twitter but i mean at this point i obviously can't keep my head above the water so um for now you can follow me on facebook you can follow me on instagram follow me on gab getter float all those places um the links are in the description to follow me there. And obviously, if you're new here, subscribe to the YouTube channel. I'm also on Odyssey. Um, and yeah, uh, I learned my lesson when I got banned the first time back in October that you can't put all your eggs in one basket. So make sure you follow me everywhere because I might get disappeared again. But uh, Dave, thanks for coming back on, man. Yeah, man. Thanks for having me. Absolutely.